Welcome to Parenting Teens with Dr. Cam, a podcast about navigating adolescence without losing our minds. Each week, I guide you around the teenage landmines with practical tips, simple solutions, and words of encouragement. I'm your host, Dr. Cam. Let's get on with the show. Welcome parents. Does the amount of time your teenager spends on their phone playing video games or scrolling through TikTok drive you mad? Do they go ballistic when you try to pry them away or even hint at doing something different? Then this episode is for you. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Amanda Giordano, Associate Professor of Counseling at the University of Georgia and author of A Clinical Guide to Treating Behavioral Addictions and Addictions Counseling, A Practical Approach. Dr. Giordano is a prolific scholar in the field of addictions counseling and currently has authored 58 journal articles and book chapters. In addition, Dr. Giordano frequently presents on topics related to behavioral addictions, both domestically and internationally. So today, Dr. Giordano is going to tell us what parents need to know about adolescent behavioral addiction and provide some tips on how to address it. Welcome, Mm -hmm. Dr. Giordano. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I am too. This is such an important discussion, and I know so many of my clients and my listeners struggle with this, so I am eager to hear what you have to say, but let's just start with a brief backstory. What drew you to focus on behavioral addiction? Yeah, so I was trained in the addictions counseling field. So I took classes about substance use and drug addiction. But when I got into practice, I found that chemicals are not the only thing you can be addicted to. And so when I had my first client who um, struggled with pornography addiction, Mm. I was like, I don't know what to do with this because this is not my training. My training was substance use disorders. And so I thankfully had a supervisor who was a certified sex addiction therapist and was able to mentor me and train me in um, sex addiction and how to work with that client. And then from that point on, I was like, this is something that we all need to know, not just addictions counselors. And then in the last year or two, I've done a lot of presenting for parents who are saying, okay, outside of the clinical field, help us. We're the ones with our teens. We're with our children. We're seeing them using the phone and please, you know, give us some of this information. So now I'm pretty just passionate about disseminating information wherever I can. That's amazing. And I, it's so funny because my path was similar. It was like, this is such good information. Why do the parents who need this information on a daily basis not have it? Exactly. Like, why and, are we saving yeah. it for when there's an emergency? Why can't right. we just address it right yep. here and now when before it's an emergency? And do some prevention. That's what I've been working on the other side of intervening when full-blown addiction is driving mm-hmm. someone to a treatment facility, which yeah. I think training folks in effective and ethical interventions is so important. But now let's get on the preventative side and say, what can families, what can schools be doing to try and prevent some of this? Okay, so what can families be doing to prevent some of this? (laughs) Such a great question. Well, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) 
I think we need to have an understanding of what behavioral addictions are. And so the two things I wanted to share with parents, with listeners today, is that not every behavior has addiction potential. So Mm -hmm. um, it's not like sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, I fold laundry every day. Am I addicted to folding laundry? Or I brush my teeth every day. Am I addicted? And the answer, of course, is no. It's those behaviors that are rewarding, meaning they stimulate our reward pathway, which is located in a specific region of the brain when we get a release of dopamine and other neurotransmitters that are implicated in reward, the experience of pleasure, euphoria, those are the behaviors that have addiction potential. So when it comes to teens, we're thinking about social media use, gaming, um, pornography and sex addiction, food addiction. We're thinking of things like non-suicidal self-injury, exercise addiction, and gambling. Sports betting is increasing among teens. So those are the types of behaviors that I write about and I do research on. Those are the ones that have addiction potential. But the other piece I want parents to know is not every teenager has the same risk or vulnerability to developing a behavioral addiction. So not every teen who games is going to end up with gaming disorder. Not every teen who uses social media will end up with social media addiction. Instead, there are risk factors that increase individuals' vulnerability to behavioral addictions. And that can be genetic predispositions. So if addiction runs in your family, we know that there's a genetic component. It can be early trauma that increases the risk of um, regulating our emotions through these pleasurable activities like Mm -hmm. behavioral addictions. Mental health concerns are a risk factor, so depression, anxiety, and also early exposure. And so what I like to tell parents is that uh, your child's brain is plastic. It's influenced by experience, and it doesn't fully mature until 25 years old. And sometimes when parents hear that, they get very depressed. But that's just (laughs) how um, our brains are wired, that they are maturing all the way up until 25. So if you throw in a very rewarding stimulus stimulating activity like pornography use, when that brain is developing, it can actually alter um, brain development. It causes neuroadaptations. And so early exposure or early engagement in these behaviors can also be a risk factor. Okay. So many questions have come up. So let's kind of start at the beginning. So if not every child is susceptible to this becoming an addiction. Yeah. How do we, what are some warning signs that this is a little bit more, because I will tell you every parent believes their child does it more than they need to. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When is it a, yeah, they do it a lot versus a, this is a serious problem. Yes. So I always think about these behaviors on a continuum ranging from recreational engagement on one side and then a behavioral addiction or pathological engagement on the other side. And so we have to consider every unique individual on that continuum. There are some parents who maybe have concerns about problematic use. That's not meeting the criteria for addiction, but it's still not 
in line with their child's uh, goals and values and wellness. So you still might need to take action, even if it's not what we would consider a behavioral addiction. Right. So I'm going to hopefully provide some information today that can be helpful anywhere on the continuum of just making wise choices around digital media. But when it comes to behavioral addictions, there are four criteria that okay. parents can be looking out for, school counselors, teachers, and these four criteria all have a C in them. So it's easy to remember. We call it the four C's model. So the first is that the behavior is compulsive. Mm -hmm. And this means it's not planned and intentional, but um, the individual might be engaging just based on an urge. So this is yeah. like checking social media while driving, that we know it's not a safe time or an appropriate time to be engaging, but they can't resist that urge, especially if they see or hear a notification symbol mm -hmm. or hear that sound. And it triggers a little bit of dopamine release of saying, oh, there's a reward waiting for me. I see that yeah. notification symbol. I can't control this. It's a compulsion to check it. So yeah. when we start to see compulsive behavior, that's the first warning sign. The second is a loss of control. So perhaps parents or even the teen themselves have set limits and set boundaries on their use, but they can't uphold them. So they're engaging more um, often than they intended for longer durations of time than they intended. They might be lying about their use. So this could be um, a parent saying, you're just gonna game for two hours a day but the child is unable to do that. They're gaming for six hours. They're gaming through the night. I'm going to jump in here for a second because yeah. I feel like that describes pretty much every teenager. Exactly. It's and that's so... why it can't be by itself. We're looking okay. at these four things together. Together. So I wanted to make that clear yes. because I mm -hmm. think every parent just went, well, that's my kid. Exactly. So this is about all of them. All okay, of good. them. And the third one I think is, the most telling. It's continued use despite negative consequences. Mm -hmm. So that this means a teenager's engagement is compulsive. They've lost control. They're experiencing negative consequences, but it's not changing their behavior. So a lot of times negative consequences are a deterrent of, mm -hmm. okay, I just failed a test because I gamed all night and I was exhausted. That was a negative consequence. I'm going to do something differently in the future. But for folks who have a behavioral addiction, even in spite of these negative consequences, they don't change their behavior. Yeah. And when it comes to behavioral addictions, the negative consequences are um, very diverse and they can span different realms of life. So it can be relationally, like perhaps they don't have friends, they are lonely, they're isolated. Yeah. Um, it can be physically, especially when it comes to um, those sedentary behaviors, like I'm seated all day gaming, I'm not exercising, I'm not eating right, um, I'm starting to get pain in my joints, I'm starting to have like finger pain because I'm sitting here for 12 hours um, in the same position. And it can be family conflict, um, it can be the source of just a lot of shame or depression or anxiety. So there's a lot of negative consequences yeah. that can come with behavioral addictions. And then the last one, so the last C, and this really helps differentiate behavioral addiction from just high involvement in a behavior, yeah. is that the individual is craving it when they're not engaged. Mm -hmm. So I talk a lot about gaming addiction, and we know esports is a thing now. So there yeah. are colleges that offer scholarships for gaming. So you can have a high schooler who games 
four or five hours a day, and they are applying for scholarships to be on collegiate esport teams. Just because they game a lot doesn't meet criteria for a behavioral addiction. These four C's have to be present. And so for someone with gaming disorder, when they're not gaming, they are mentally preoccupied with it. So they are thinking about the last time they gamed, they're fantasizing about the next time they're going to game, they're craving it to the point where they might not even be in the present moment. They might not be able to enjoy life around them because they're craving gaming. And so when those four things are present, the compulsive behavior, the loss of control, continuing despite negative consequences, and craving it when they're not engaged. That should alert us that there may be a behavioral addiction here, and we can take some steps to formally assess it. Okay, so let's let's start with the prevention. Yeah. So I know people are listening to this going, oh my gosh, if my kid's not there, they're close. Yeah. I'm worried that if I don't do something, that's going to be them soon. What do we do if our kids do want to, they spend a lot of time on their phones and that's where everything is, right? And when we say get off, they get very upset or they lie or they, you know, I mean, this describes pretty much every teenager I've ever talked to, right? Or the ones that, um, including my own, but also including Mm -hmm. me, like, let's Mm -hmm. be real adults do this too. So let's not just put this on teenagers. Um, but I think how do we, as parents say, I want to make sure that my child has balance. It's not yeah. so much that I don't want them doing this, but I don't feel like the balance is is healthy. Yes. What do we do? So there's a couple of things that parents can do. And again, I think parents are asking the right question. When we are working with folks who are in behavioral addiction treatment, their first engagement in these behaviors almost always happens in adolescence or young adulthood. So it does make sense to be asking these questions. When we're talking about prevention, there's two big things that I would want parents to know. Number one is people with addiction, they become addicted to changing the way that they feel. So addictive behaviors are a very predictable and reliable way to change how we feel, either to feel good or to avoid feeling bad. So when teens develop behavioral addictions, we know that um, it becomes their primary means of regulating their emotions. So one of the things we can do, and one of the things I, I think schools should do is to help children and teens develop coping strategies and ways to manage distress. So if we can help increase distress tolerance, so yes, you feel bored, you feel lonely, you feel depressed, how can we manage that emotion? How do we modify that emotion without turning to social media, without turning to gaming, without escaping in pornography or sports betting? So I think one of the basic things we can do with all kids is to help them identify their emotions, label their emotions, and then learn how to change how they feel without turning to a drug of abuse or an addictive behavior. And so a lot of my clients, and even when I talk about this with students, I'll ask them, like, what do you do to self-soothe? How do you... get yourself to feel better 
Or if you can't feel better, maybe you're in an environment or a situation where you can't change it. How do you tolerate that distress? And sometimes I'll have students or clients say, I don't know, I I don't do it in any other way besides gaming or looking at pornography. So how do we build a tool set? We want to give them this like arsenal of things that they can use to change how they feel, to cope with distress. Um, We know that everyone's going to experience adversity in life. So do they have the tools to manage it and to tolerate it without turning to an addictive behavior? Yeah. I I think, (laughs) and I think what's really important about that too, to point out is that when we try to prohibit and stop behaviors, because we don't want them to do it too much, but we don't Mm -hmm. replace it with somebody, something else. So we make, sometimes we make the assumption that they're just doing it to do it. Yep. And you're right. Kids are self-soothing, self-soothing, yeah. right? And yeah. this is even self-harm is a, is a self-soothing yep. mechanism. It's a way to cope. Yes. It is. So yeah. if we are removing a coping technique that they've come up with yeah. and we don't help them replace it with something else, we're yep. setting them up to fail. Exactly. And I think it's really important to distinguish that though, because that's not, we're not saying just remove it. We're saying, exactly. let's talk about why they need it. And it makes sense why teens would turn to these things Mm -hmm. for their coping strategy. They're free, they're accessible, they're widely- Yep, they work and they're widely (laughs) accepted. So it makes sense that that's what they're turning to, but you're exactly right. We need to say, so what is the function of that behavior Mm -hmm. for you? One of the things that we see in our internet gaming addiction research is that there are different motives for gaming. Some of it is just social. Like this is what Mm -hmm. my friends are doing. Some of it is recreational. I'm bored. I'm going to game. Other motives are escape and immersion. So I want to escape my life and become my avatar. I want to avoid the pain in my life and get lost, immerse myself in the virtual world. That motive is more linked to internet gaming disorder than the other motives. And so- I think parents talking to their teen and say, well, what does gaming do for you? Like, why do you like it so much? What's the function can really help them see, are they using this to cope? Are they using it to avoid pain? Are they using it as a way to feel good? Cause they don't have anything else in their life that makes them feel good. And if so, how do we replace that with a behavior that's more in line with their wellness goals, their values, their future goals. So I think coping and emotion regulation are just huge parts they of are. prevention. And when we just jump, when we jump in and we try to like shame them away from it, or we take it away, what's ironic Mm -hmm. is we're actually adding more to what they need to cope with. Right. The distress. Mm -hmm. Adding more distress, but removing their coping skill, their coping technique. So now we're really setting them up to to really be distressful. So I think it's important to realize what we're doing. The intention is good. But the Mm -hmm. outcome we've got to be careful about. Yeah. And that's why, so the second point of prevention Mm -hmm. um, is really to be intentional and to develop develop a plan. So they're all over the internet, our family technology plans. And you do this as like a family unit. So again, we're not just pointing out the teens. We also are pointing at parents and how they use technology. Yep. So we know that brain maturation continues through 25 years old. So just like everything else, adolescents need some 
guidelines. They need a plan. They need limits and rules. And a lot of people compare digital media use to uh, a diet. And if you think about gaming and social media as like sugary sweets, just like their normal diet, we wouldn't allow teens to eat sugar all day long. Like we put limits on it. So we do the same thing with their technology intake too. How do we make sure they're not um, overusing and overindulging in some of these? So a couple of guidelines that parents can think about if they want to develop a technology plan for their family is asking questions like, um, how much screen time do we want to allow in a day? And that's all screens. And so we're thinking about if teens are going to school and doing homework eight or nine hours a day, um, we know the recommendation for one hour of physical activity a day. Uh, We also know there's eight to 12 hours of sleep recommended each day. So if you take 24 hours and you are breaking it down into how many hours for school and schoolwork, how many hours for physical activity, how many hours for sleep, depending upon your child's age and the amount of sleep that they get, that leaves about three to seven hours every day for things like household chores, socializing in person, um, reading, spiritual practices, uh, playing games offline, and then how much time do we want to dedicate to screen time? And when we say screen time, that is watching YouTube videos, that is gaming, that's social media use. So you really develop a plan of how many hours per day are we allotting to which type of technology use. And when you break it down in a 24-hour period, you quickly realize, okay, there's not that much time left for gaming and for social media use when we're considering these other things that are important in a teenager's development. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to stress, and you may hear this from your teen, is that, well, all my friends are in the game and I want to game with them. That's fine. And that can be a part of socialization. But we continue to see a correlation between internet gaming disorder and loneliness. Mm. So there's something that online relationships are lacking when it comes to fulfilling our teens sense of belonging and attachment. So we want to encourage those offline social events as well, in order to really help them build up that social support and that peer network. I think I want to address that too, because I think Mm -hmm. that causes a lot of friction and it also causes a lot of, it's interesting because I have a lot of these conversations with teenagers too. And I think adults have a different relationship with technology than kids do. And Mm -hmm. I I kind of want to, I think adults, and I like the way you described it as part of the sugary sweets, Mm -hmm. but I also want to kind of question on that a little bit too, because I think we have Uh, a belief that everything we do online is sugary sweets. And yet kids do some really amazing things online. So when we talk about time, I feel like we need to distinguish what they're doing on it. Exactly. Because some are sugary sweet, but a lot of what they're doing is not right. Yeah, They're social. And so doing that, but also how do we kind of address and find that balance between, yes, it's important for them to do other things offline. Mm-hmm. However, we also have to understand that their culture is different than the culture we grew up. So what works yeah. for us doesn't work for them anymore because their friends aren't outside playing. Right. They can't just go outside. Their friends yeah. are online. That's yeah. where they find them. Right. And that's so where... how do we balance that? It's a tough one. 
Yep. We can differentiate between more healthy, like what are the fruits and vegetables that are online versus the sugary sweets? And I would say anything that's being used for educational purposes, we know would be more of like a fruit and vegetable use of the internet. Um, Even doing homework, a lot of that is going to happen online. We also know that online behaviors that are done in the context of a um, group activity. So if we have kids gaming together in the same space, the same physical space, as well as online, it's better than gaming alone by yourself with no one in the room and strangers online. So there are ways that we can make this more healthy is how do we make it group activities? Parents can get involved of, okay, what game are you playing? How can I play with you? Make it a joint activity. So it's not just virtual, but it's virtual and offline. So I agree with you. We need to differentiate between the types of internet use. How is technology being used? And the sugary sweets, I would say, are the potentially addictive ones. So yeah. the um, social media use, I think gaming does have that addictive potential. And we know this, if you look at, this is where I get in my advocacy role. <laughs> if you look at um, the the platforms and the people who are benefiting financially from mm-hmm. um, games and social media and pornography, their goal oftentimes is to keep users engaged for as long as possible. Yeah. So their goal is not always the welfare of teenagers. <laughs> oh, and not always. I think never. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we just saw the Surgeon General come out and say he believes based on the research 13 is too young for social media. That's not what the social media platforms are saying. They're saying 13 and older can benefit from this. So we have to also have on our protective lens of saying, if they're using what Tristan Harris, who left Google, he calls it persuasive technology. So there are things in games and things in social media and pornography that are designed to stimulate your child's reward pathway, to keep them playing because of the dopamine rush, the excitement, the social rewards they're getting from it. So it's, I think we, yes, we need to say, okay, social life happens online and we need to kind of honor that and see how can we do that in a healthy way. But we're also not turning a blind eye to the very persuasive um, and intentional techniques that are being used to keep teens and children and adults adults. on on their phone. Right. (laughs) on their phone as long as possible. How many of us have started scrolling and then we look up and it's half an hour or an hour later. That's very intentional. There's no breaks between the videos. It goes right into the next one. These algorithms are showing us things that are um, in line with our personal interests. So we have personalization on the phone that we've never had before in different environments. So I do think parents have to be very savvy about, okay, help me understand what technology you're using and what are the benefits, what are the potential risks, and making decisions for their unique child. There may be a child down the street who has different boundaries and rules than your child, and that's okay. You need to say, what is healthy? What is good for my child? Now let's do, before we go, I want to just kind of give parents like two things that they can do that are effective. Yeah. And helping your kids manage their screen time or any sort of behavioral addictions. Because yeah. as we said, just forbidding it, taking right. it away, shaming yeah. them does yep. not work. So yep. what do we do? 
Okay, so if I only can narrow it down to two, um, I'm thinking about this because I'm thinking what would be the most helpful. We already talked about the family technology plan, yes. which I think could be great. But the other piece I just want parents to know is even when you're not thinking of addictive behaviors, we're also concerned about safety. And I think it's very important that parents have conversations with their teens about what they could potentially see online before they see it. So I'll give you an example. We just finished a research project looking at 350 teenagers in the US between 12 and 17 years old. 53% had already seen pornography and the average age of first exposure is 11 and a half. So that 11 year old, if they stumble upon pornography and they see a um, violent video, that can be a traumatic experience for an 11 year old. Yeah. So what I tell parents is have the conversation with them prior to when they see it. So that means nine and 10 year olds, we're sitting down and saying things like, you know, there's a lot of different types of pictures online and videos online. Some are made for adults and some are made for kids. If you ever see a picture or a video that's made for adults, maybe people without clothes on or people engaging in something that you don't understand. It's not your fault for seeing that. Come and tell me so we can talk about it. So having that conversation first can give your child direction. Okay, this is what my caregiver was telling me about. I know what to do. I'm going to turn it off and go tell them because we've already talked about this. That way they're not harboring this dark secret of I saw something I'm not sure I was supposed to see, but no one's ever talked to me about it. Maybe it was very bad. I'm just going to keep it secret for a long time yeah, and yeah. never discuss it. We know that pornography is a terrible sex education teacher. So there's a yeah. lot we'll probably have to un- uh, learn with our kids who have seen pornography. So I would say parents have the conversations, be open about what your children may be experiencing online, cyberbullying, non-suicidal self-injury images online. There's a lot of things they could come across and they need you and they need you to be their person. They can come back to and say, this happened to me, or someone said this to me, or someone I don't know in a game asked me for a photo. Like these types of things you want to prepare them for. We want to set our kids up for success rather than yeah. giving them a device and saying, I hope it works out for you. Yeah, you know, there's, good luck. there's don't too do, much. Don't do anything bad. Exactly. I, yeah. I, I like too that you give them a plan because I think what happens is kids stumble on stuff Mm -hmm. And even a parent, all of a sudden find out their kids stumbled on stuff and yeah. we don't know what to do. And yep. so there's a reactive, so yes. the kids react and usually their kids react, see something that they know they shouldn't see. So yeah. their natural reaction is to hide it. Yep, right? exactly. That's, just, yeah. that's human nature. That's not yep. bad kid. That's human nature. Yeah. A parent's initial reaction is like freak out. Like, right. oh my God. Yes. And that's not going to help either. So I yeah. think knowing this is going to happen. It just mm -hmm. is. Yep. It is. So what, what do you want them to do? do? And what do we do? And if exactly. we're ready, then we're not going to be reactive. And that's yep. what we want to avoid. I love that. Okay. Yeah. And the second piece I would say is just when it comes to parental controls. So games and even just um, having a phone, there's a lot of options parents have, but it takes a little bit of work on their part. They have to read reviews, read ratings. So um, one of the things I always stress to parents is when would you want your teenager 
talking to strangers offline? Like, when do you feel okay about that? And then ask yourself, when do I feel okay about that online? So in games, you need to know if there's user interaction. Are they interacting with people that they don't know? And if so, when is that appropriate for your child? Who do you want them interacting with? And what kind of parameters do you want to give them around safety? So not yeah. disclosing their personal information, not sharing photos, not, and there's a lot that happens in these online spaces and we need to be as careful about them as offline spaces. So I would tell parents, do your research, check the ratings, understand if there's going to be sexual content in the game, if there's sexual content on social media, to what extent do you want to have a, um, we have bark phones now, we have a lot of parental controls and ways that parents can monitor what their children are doing online. I also tell parents, because I hear them say, you know, but my kid needs a phone, they need access, this is where all the social events happen. Mm -hmm. And again, that was intentional, we use social media now to plan events to invite it's almost impossible to live without it it so, is i mean schools mm -hmm. use it too for all exactly. that I mean, for communication yeah. so it it is yep. it makes it very difficult yeah, so I've told some parents, you know, maybe your soccer team needs to go back to old time texting and just have a group thread rather than saying all the information is going to be on Facebook or yeah. on a social media group. So parents can make choices about how do we want to communicate and what do we want to rely on. But the other piece is all technology has a range of functions and capabilities and you don't have to give your child all of those access right. to all of it right at the beginning so with age with demonstrated maturity you can start to increase what they have access to so it could start out just a phone and then phone and texting and then phone texting and videos and then phone texting videos and gaming as they get older so i do think there needs to be some thought into developmentally what's appropriate for for my child and how are we going to create access to what they need without necessarily giving access to everything all at once. Yes. And that's what, again, Good. when you look at what the Surgeon General said, he was using numbers like 16, 17, 18 years old when they're on social media. So it's okay to say, you know, for us in our household, we're not going to do Instagram. We're not going to do Facebook. There are other ways we're going to help you connect with peers until maybe you get a little bit older. Yeah. That's, that's a hard conversation because I, I think from teens perspective, you are preventing them from interacting with their peers mm -hmm. and knowing and, what's going on. So I think yeah. that is a discussion that you want to have a really clear discussion with your kids and have them part of mm -hmm. that discussion because it's going to impact them greatly. Yeah. And I think it's important to realize that. Yep. And if you decide, okay, we are going to use social media, what kind of involvement is parent going to have in yeah. child's social media account? And is it yeah. something that they can keep hidden or is it something that you talk about and say, you know, let me see what's going on on social media for you. I know this is important in your life. Who are you talking to? What happens when cyberbullying on social media occurs? Like you want to be having those open dialogues yeah. and for parents to be a part of their child's digital media use rather than seeing as like the enemy of it. How do we talk about it together and be on the same yeah. team? It's right. It's kind of like learning to drive a car. They're going to drive a car. Cars are mm -hmm. dangerous. Yeah. So it's good analogy. How mm -hmm. to access it and, and drive it safely yeah. is more important than just never letting them use it. Exactly. Right. right. So it's like, I think, and I, and I've seen kids who's, if they're not allowed at home, 
they're still accessing it. Yeah. But now they don't know how to access it. And now they're even more interested in like all the stuff they're not allowed. So yeah. it's like knowing that they're going to access it and teaching them to use it appropriately. Exactly. I think it's really, really important because it's yeah. not going away. Right. So it's how do we set them up for success? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love this. So how do people find you? Yeah. So I have a couple of resources. So any clinicians out there, I do have a book on treating behavioral addiction. So um, you're welcome to look into that. For parents, I keep a blog on psychology today um, mm -hmm. called Understanding Addiction. And I talk about chemical and behavioral addictions, but I try to write it for parents and families and teachers, um, not clinicians, but just folks who are saying, how do I live in this world, this digital oh, world? Good. And um, so feel free to to check me out there and then I do have a um author page on Facebook too so if you want to search for Amanda Giordano you can find um all of my webinars and resources um on Facebook as well that's perfect and I will put all those links in the show notes so people can find them great so Dr. Giordano thank you so much for joining us today. yes thank you for having me and for being interested in this topic oh this is such an important topic um it's I'm sure a lot of parents are thankful to hear some tips and just right. understand it a little bit more. Right. Um, yeah. and, and thank you parents for taking time out of your busy day to spend with us. I really appreciate you. If you want to learn more about how to help your teens thrive, you can grab my top 10 secrets for raising teens at askdrcam.com slash parenting tips. Until next time, stay curious. Remember, there's always more to the story than what you see. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining me today on Parenting Teens with Dr. Cam. Make sure to visit my website, www.askdrcam.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show again. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, I'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, and hey, why not share it with a friend too? Be sure to tune in to my next episode. And remember, parenting teens may not be easy, but with my help, it can be a whole lot easier than this.